From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, December 6th. I'm Marco Werman. Russians take to the streets for a second day to protest alleged election fraud. Plus, what if the Eurozone fails? Here's one Dutch take on it. We don't know what will happen if you break it up. So it's like the famous uh, expression, you cannot uh, unscramble a scrambled egg. And students at Georgetown dig into Chinese military secrets and draw some criticism from experts. Why did the so-called experts not look at the information in front of them? And why was it that a group of Georgetown students had to be the ones that found it? PRI's The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. And by IBM, working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at IBM.com engines. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Protesters in Russia are not standing down. Police and demonstrators clash for a second day in Moscow. Protesters came out to denounce Prime Minister Vladimir Putin and his ruling United Russia Party after reports of fraud in Sunday's parliamentary elections. Police also detained some 200 people at a rally in St. Petersburg. Miriam Elder is a correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. She was at the rally in Moscow's Triumphalnia Square earlier today. Elder says it wasn't just protesters in the streets. There were also many counter-protesters. Today the square has been filled with thousands of activists from NASHI, which is a pro-Kremlin youth group. And the, uh, the opposition has been sort of sidelined, and it's actually impossible to tell how many of them uh, have turned out. But it's, it's far less than turned out yesterday. So would you describe this as a standoff, or is there a real tension between the two sides? I wouldn't say it's a standoff just because the opposition is so outnumbered. You know, Nashi was created uh, several years ago after pro-democratic revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia precisely to counter any potential unrest in Russia as a whole. And so they've been here for over an hour just shouting and beating on drums and shouting Medvedev victory and Putin, Russia, waving flags. So uh, so they've, they've won today. So who exactly is out on the streets protesting Putin? And what would you describe the demographic as being employed, middle class? Definitely uh, middle class. I talked to, you know, a lawyer, to a financial analyst, to a man who owns his own business. And what I found most interesting is that these are people who didn't come to the protest yesterday. They just heard about it via social networks, Facebook and the Russian version of Facebook, Skontaktia. And uh, that's why they came out today. Miriam, we hear that uh, blogger and activist Alexei Navalny uh, was arrested and uh, got 15 days in jail today. Tell us who he is and what the reaction to his arrest has been. He's a lawyer by training. He started this campaign about a year ago against corruption in Russia, and he would point out specific cases of corruption, and it built into this a real grassroots movement where people write in with, with cases for him to explore. And uh, he runs a very popular blog where he talks about all that. And then about half a year ago, I would say, he went on this radio program, and he came out completely spontaneously, he says, with this, uh, with this term, calling United Russia a party of crooks and thieves. And all of a sudden, it's become a, a rallying cry for anybody who's against this government. 
Right. I'm just wondering, does this dissent extend outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg? No, this this isn't like a countrywide protest movement that's sweeping the nation. As people at the protest, speakers at the protest said yesterday, this is a small step towards something that can potentially become bigger. But I think there is a recognition that this is not huge for Russia. Miriam, I, I'm just still confused. What's bringing these people out onto the streets now? I mean, it's not like a bread riot. What is the motivation right now? People are really angry. And the thing that kicked off these protests that we've seen the past couple of days are parliamentary elections that were held on Sunday. And the reports of falsifications and violations have just been you know, spreading through social networks like crazy because people have been videotaping and taking pictures of clear violations with their own cell phones. It's hard to deny the, the scale of falsification that happens. And so people have something concrete to be upset about. But you're not sure where this dissent may be headed. If it does fizzle out, why do you think it may fizzle out? I think because of what we're seeing today is, you know, the Kremlin has created these youth groups precisely to counter protests like this, first of all. So, you know, today this protest was a failure for the opposition. And number two, it's just really cold. You're never going to have a Tahrir Square in December in Moscow. Miriam Elder, a correspondent for The Guardian newspaper in London, speaking with us from the streets of Moscow. Thanks so much, Miriam. Thank you. Europe's going through its own troubles, largely due to the unfolding debt crisis. Even some of the strongest economies are now on high alert. That's after Standard & Poor's warned that Germany and others in the Eurozone could see their credit ratings slashed if the economic problems continue. Eurozone leaders are meeting later this week to try to keep that from happening and to save the common currency. But in the Netherlands, some are saying enough is enough. It's time to ditch the euro. The world's Clark Boyd reports from Amsterdam. It's a cold, wet day at the Albert Kuyp Street Market, one of the best places in town to grab anything from waffles to sexy underwear to an antique armoire. I ask one trader selling gloves, scarves, and hats, how's business? He doesn't want to give his name, but he says business is as gloomy as the weather. They spent a lot less, but the food is more expensive, everything is more expensive, so the normal cost, so renting, all that kind of stuff, that's where the salary is going to. They don't have anything left to buy. To add to the misery, he says, the Dutch are now being asked to bail out the Greeks, the Portuguese, and the Irish. Like many here in the Netherlands, he blames the euro. The Dutch guilder, he says, was one of Europe's strongest currencies when the switch was made in the late 1990s. We sold our guilder much too cheap. That's what I think. And a lot of people think that. Give me back my guilder, yeah. Looking back just a year before the euro was introduced... More than 70, almost 80 percent of the Dutch people was in favor of the euro introduction. Matthias Bauman is an economist and author. He says the Dutch love the guilder, but let it go in the name of being good European partners. Now he says he understands why, in this time of crisis, some are nostalgic for the old currency. But for Holland, he says, there's no turning back now. Abandoning the euro would destroy our economy. If you look at, especially in the Netherlands, if you look at multinational firms, for instance, they're really embedded in the euro system. If you look at our banks, they have all their debt and all their assets in euro. And we don't know what will happen if you break it up. So it's like the famous uh, expression, you cannot uh, unscramble a scrambled egg. But that isn't stopping some from proposing ways to try to do just that. One idea floated by Dutch politicians is for a northern euro or neuro. It would only include Northern European countries on sound economic footing. The Dutch would get in because, in the words of one politician, we Dutch are able to control ourselves. 
But today's warning on the country's credit rating tells a different story, says economist Jaap Kolewijn. It was a very clear sign. It was telling us, you, northern part of Europe, don't overestimate yourself. Your budget is also going out of control if you don't take care. Um, your banking system is at risk. Kolewijn says that European leaders need to pony up more than $5 trillion for the European bailout fund in order to calm the markets and keep economic contagion in check. But Dutch economist Arjo Klamer says that the price tag for keeping the euro together is too high. To be clear, Klamer's been against the euro from the beginning. Without a true political and fiscal union, he argued at the time, there was no hope for a single currency. And now just throwing money at the problem, he says, doesn't address the real underlying issues, namely that the economies vary so widely. Economies are dynamic. Uh, Things change. And you need to have an an institutional framework in place that can account for those dynamics and has the space and the flexibility also to adjust to what's happening. Like everyone else in Europe, the Dutch will be paying close attention to the meetings in Brussels on Thursday and Friday. I asked one economist, what do you think will happen? He urged me to watch the chicken scene in Rebel Without a Cause, the one where James Dean's counterpart gets his sleeve caught and can't bail out in time. The euro is just like that, he told me. One small mistake at this point, and the car will go right over the cliff, and the Dutch along with it. For the world, this is Clark Boyd in Amsterdam. The euro was supposed to be a symbol and a tool for creating a larger European identity. The idea was to strengthen the collective economy and help maintain peace on the continent. But the debt crisis is challenging that euro's solidarity, as the world's Jerry Haddon reports. Creating a European identity has been at the heart of the European Union since its inception. The strengthening of European identity. This objective will be supported by more than 200 million euros in the following years. This EU online video notes that Brussels spends a lot of money on projects aimed at strengthening a European identity. That is, a sense among citizens of the 27-member collective that they belong to something bigger than just their home countries. And the money Brussels is spending? Euros. Of course, the euro is meant to symbolize and foster that unity. The money is covered in images and slogans from European history, things meant to celebrate diversity and unity. Take this two-euro coin. On one side is the French slogan, liberty, equality, fraternity. On the other, a map of the entire continent. This particular coin is changing hands on a recent morning at the Parisienne, a small bar in the medieval quarter of Barcelona. The owner is a guy named Gregorio. He says he read last week how French President Nicolas Sarkozy said that if the euro vanishes, nothing will remain of Europe. Gregorio says that got him scared. Because we could go back to the way things were before, he says. You know, each country for itself. The history of Europe is measured by war. The past 60 years of peace in countries belonging to the European Union, he says, is unique in Europe's history. And he says he thinks the European Union and the euro deserve the credit. EU leaders continue to hammer this point as they seek to save the currency. Yesterday, Italy's interim prime minister, Mario Monti, said he's worried that the sovereign debt crisis is turning the euro into a divisive tool, driving Europeans apart. The crisis has been driving Europeans apart now for more than two years. Witness the many riots in Greece as it's teetered on the edge of bankruptcy. The euro didn't cause the Greek crisis, of course, but many Greeks now see the euro as a symbol of the devastating austerity measures dictated by Europe. 
In Spain, voices critical of the euro are on the rise as well. In Barcelona's main square, Spaniards line up to test a new ice skating rink set up for the Christmas season. A factory worker named Teresa Vallecillos shows up with her 10-year-old son. As she pulls out some cash to pay, she says she's never much liked the euro. A ver, la verdad... Truth is, she says, when we joined the Eurozone, shopkeepers rounded up their prices to the nearest euro, and at the same time, our wages went down. Not surprisingly, Vallecillo says she doesn't consider herself European first. No, she says, I feel Spanish. I've never noticed any positive change from joining the Eurozone. But Euro supporters like Carol Janu say people forget that before the crisis hit, the Euro had made Europe richer making trade and travel across the eurozone easier. The currency also gave Europe more might in dealing with other big trading partners like the U.S. and China. Janu is with the Brussels-based think tank, the Center for European Reform. He says European leaders haven't done a good job of talking up the currency's benefits. What you need to do, let's say, to stimulate a common feeling is just to say, look, um, we have a model of society to defend, where, for example, you have uh, social security for everybody, you have schooling for everybody, you have unemployment benefits for everybody. We are not like the United States, where the difference between the rich and the poor are much higher than they are in Europe. Janu says the euro's demise or diminishment would be a disastrous step backward for this sense of collective identity. But if social media sites are any indication, the European identity is headed in that direction. There's a Facebook page titled, Why Do I Feel European?, no one has posted to it in over a year. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Still to come on the show, what to do when you've got college loans to pay off and you're working three part-time jobs? Move to China on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, working across borders, disciplines, and industries to deliver medical technology solutions that help improve healthcare around the world. Learn more at Medtronic.com innovation. Medtronic, innovating for life. And by IBM, working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at IBM.com engines. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. China's nuclear arsenal may be much larger than experts previously thought. That's not the conclusion of a Pentagon study. It's the finding of a group of undergrads at Georgetown University. The students worked under the direction of their professor, Philip Carber. He's a former Pentagon official. They used open-source material and some private sources to explore China's capacity to wage nuclear war. Their research also paints a picture of a vast network of Chinese tunnels built to survive a nuclear attack. Some experts are questioning the unpublished findings, but the student project has already sparked a congressional hearing. One of the students is Dustin Walker. 
You know, this started as a uh, pretty much a straightforward arms control course. But over the course of the uh, time that we spent in class, we started to look at some information on these tunnels that had appeared on Chinese state television. And it raised a lot of questions for the students as well as uh, Professor Carver as to what exactly this meant and what impact it would have. Now, you graduated earlier this year in May, but you've been working on this project for several years. So this isn't like some senior project, was it? No, this this went on for about two or three years. There are other students who have been doing it uh, perhaps even longer, uh, continuing on into grad school and into their professional lives. This is This was definitely not just a class project. This was something that we all took on because we really wanted to find an answer to an unanswered question. Uh, and it's one that's really important and that people weren't paying very much attention to when they should have been. And what exactly is that question? Because Professor Carber comes from the Pentagon. I mean, did, did he ask you what the question was or did he let you find your own direction, question and focus? Well, you know, the, the way he posed it to us was this. You know, he would just show us maybe a little bit of clip from Chinese state TV showing you what these tunnels are. or You know, we'd get some information about maybe how big these would be. And the question was simply this. What does this mean? Mm. And um, that was something we didn't have an answer to. So Carver set us out on our own. We uh, didn't have any direction. We didn't answer the question before we went out and did the research. And what we came to find was that uh, they have a tunnel network that's probably about 3,000 miles worth. That's enough to get you from Boston to San Francisco. Uh, These tunnels are capable of storing, transporting, and hiding nuclear warheads and missiles. And basically, this could have... Uh, a major impact on how we deal with China in the context of arms control in the future. This project must have been hugely labor intensive. Maybe you can just paint a picture of a typical day for, you know, an undergrad in this uh, arms control class. There were millions of pages uh, translated, people who knew Chinese trying to do this on their own, uh, feeding tons of pages through scanners and everything like that. My time was mostly spent in the libraries with stacks of papers and books on Chinese military thought, stuff that came from the PLA, other stuff uh, originating here in the United States. The People's Liberation Army. Yes, that's right. Uh, And we would just go through that stuff hours and hours, uh, just trying to find out exactly how these Chinese strategic thinkers were looking at the world, what they saw, and what they were going to do in response. And, And that, framing the question that way, helped us address what exactly we thought these tunnels might mean. Given that Professor Carver originally launched the question, what, what yeah. does this mean? I'm wondering, what do you think he learned from you and your methods? Was it a revelation? Well, I mean, I think that Professor Carver knew that he had a dedicated group of students on his hands that really cared about answering the question. And I think that what he probably drew from it was that, yes, this tunnel network does mean something. Yes, there are a lot of important questions out there that aren't being answered, but I think that what Professor Carver took away from it is that we've got a young generation out there that's very interested in actually answering these questions. Um, For people that are my age, we look at a 21st century whose history is going to be largely synonymous with the future of U.S.-China relations, and we want answers to these questions, and we want to deal with them seriously, and I think that that's what Professor Carver and others of uh, his generation are seeing in ours. So how do you think this whole project, you know, and as you said, it went on for not just your last year, but uh, three years. How did it affect your college experience overall? Well, you know, I think it defined my college experience because uh, at at Georgetown and in this uh, project, we weren't simply doing homework assignments or taking tests. We were engaging in a real world problem. And actually, we had the opportunity uh, and the privilege to really 
go out and create the largest body of public knowledge on a really important issue. Uh, that's not something that college students often say that they did. Um, and we get to say that at Georgetown. And that, that was hugely important. And that is what I'm going to take away from my college experience. I'm wondering uh, how you feel about this methodology. And maybe some of the criticism actually comes from a place where you're students and you're not experts. And people are a little miffed that you were able to come up with these conclusions so kind of easily in a way. Right. Well, I guess the question that I would ask in response to that would be, uh, why did the so-called experts not look at the information in front of them? And why was it that a group of Georgetown students had to be the ones that found it? This was information that was out there waiting for anyone who was an expert to analyze and give their own conclusions. Um, We were the ones who did it first, and we're offering up our research for anybody uh, to read, to analyze, to draw their own conclusions. We're not trying to tell anybody what to think. Frankly, I welcome input from other experts on this. We'd like to see what they think. But to say just because we're students that somehow our conclusions are not reputable, I think, is short-sighted. Let me ask you one final question, uh, because your report has also drawn criticism from weapons experts who say that your study could actually create an argument for nuclear proliferation among some hawks. What do you say to that? Well, look, uh, we went into this with no preformed answers. Okay, we did open source research and we just followed it where it led. Um, I don't think that the purpose of this project was to suggest anyone that there ought to be nuclear proliferation in Asia or anywhere around the world or that there needs to be any kind of conflict. All that we're trying to point out, and I think the important thing to take away, is that at the end of the day, we don't know how big the arsenal is. The arms control community doesn't know how big the arsenal is. Only the Chinese know that. So that's a question that the Chinese are going to have to answer so that uh, our allies in the region and that so the United States knows uh, what their intentions are and how they see the strategic landscape. Um, We took an honest approach, and I think we gave as honest an answer as we could. Dustin Walker, great to speak with you. Thank you. Dustin Walker researched China's nuclear arsenal through his undergrad years at Georgetown University in Washington. China is also the focus of our GeoQuiz today. We're zeroing in on China's biggest city. It looks out over the East China Sea from about halfway between Beijing and Hong Kong. An estimated 23 million people live in this megacity. 23 million plus one. I'm really excited about going to a job in a country that's welcoming, that wants me there, and is appreciative of what I've done and the skills and what I can contribute to their students and to their country. So it's overwhelming in a positive way. We'll hear about what motivated this young American to take a job in China. That's later in the program. For now, your assignment is to find a map of Asia and trace your finger along the Yangtze River. That will lead you to China's biggest city and the answer to our quiz. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, climate scientists say the world's ice sheets are melting more quickly than previously thought. It's caught us all very much off guard. These are not the ice sheets that I was being taught when I was in graduate school. They are changing at magnitudes and at rates that were thought impossible just 15 years ago. PRI's The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com. And by IBM, working to help mid-sized businesses become the engines of a smarter planet. Learn more at IBM.com engines. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The warning to climate negotiators in South Africa today was clear. The door to achieving our objective is closing. The head of the International Energy Agency said it will be impossible to avoid dangerous warming of the Earth's atmosphere this century unless countries act quickly to make deep cuts in greenhouse gas pollution. The chances of that happening at this week's climate summit seem slim. The talks are proceeding slowly, as they have in past years. But the science of global warming is racing ahead, especially when it comes to rising seas. As Sam Eaton reports, there's emerging evidence that the world's oceans could rise a good deal faster and higher than expected just a few years ago. The day after this year's U.N. climate summit ends, a research team is scheduled to fly into a remote corner of Antarctica. They're headed for the Pine Island Glacier. It's the biggest ice shelf in western Antarctica, and it's moving fast. This is the fastest glacier in Antarctica. It's going 4,000 meters a year, which converts to about one foot, just over one foot every hour. So this ice is ripping along. That's the expedition's leader, Robert Benshadler of NASA. He says the reason that ice is moving so fast is because unusually warm ocean water is seeping in miles under the glacier's forward edge, melting it from below. In the case of Pine Island, we think it's melting at over 100 meters per year, uh, right at the upstream end of the ice shelf. And you thin that ice shelf by that amount, and the glacier speeds up many tens of percent. Scientists compare what's happening to the glacier to popping the cork on a champagne bottle. But in this case, what's being held back is frozen water. And it's not just one glacier. There are signs of sudden rapid melting across Antarctica, where all the corks on all the glaciers and ice sheets are holding back enough water to raise global sea levels more than 200 feet. The faster that ice melts, the faster the world's coastlines will be inundated. The problem is no one saw this coming. It's caught us all very much off guard. These are not the ice sheets that I was being taught when I was in graduate school. They are changing at magnitudes and at rates that were thought impossible just 15 years ago. That rapid melting is challenging assumptions on how much global warming will cause sea levels to rise this century. The last major report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, in 2007 suggested a worst-case scenario of less than two feet of rise by 2100. But Virginia Burkett with the U.S. Geological Survey, a lead author on the report, says there was a big caveat. The last IPCC report included sea level projections that were based primarily on thermal expansion. And of course, sea level is rising because of the combination of thermal expansion of seawater and ice sheet decline. 
The problem was that the science on ice sheet decline or melting polar ice just wasn't good enough at the time. So the IPCC decided to leave it out of their final projections. And even though the report's fine print clearly stated that ice loss could accelerate substantially, that number of less than two feet has become a kind of default prediction for sea level rise. Fast forward five years and scientists like Ben Shadler and Burkett are now projecting a high-end scenario of about six feet of rising sea levels by the end of the century. That's enough to make crowded coastal cities like Mumbai unlivable, displacing more than 100 million people worldwide. But some scientists say even a prediction of six feet may be too conservative. Harold Wanless chairs the geology department at the University of Miami. All the projections by the IPCC and all the other groups are the responses to a gradual rise of sea level, perhaps accelerating as time goes along. That's not how it worked in the past. Scientists like Wanless are studying sediments from past warming periods to find clues as to how quickly sea levels changed. And what they've found is the stuff of Hollywood movies, rapid pulses in the 20-foot range, and on a time scale that could be not centuries, but decades. That's in the line of possibility. And, and you almost have to wonder, why aren't we thinking about saying, well, if that could happen this century, maybe we ought to start relocating things. Everything from national archives and our world seed banks, some of which are at, at much too low elevation, and our military bases, things we wouldn't want disrupted, our nuclear power plants. Why are we, why are we even looking at the coast for those? Wanless believes the ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland have already passed their tipping point for runaway melting. The only question for him is how fast it will happen. Most climate scientists don't go that far. They say they still don't understand the complex dynamics of ice melt, enough to predict with confidence a 20-foot rise by the end of the century. But few are ruling it out. Penn State climatologist and IPCC co-author Richard Alley says a good analogy of the risk is driving a car. The most likely thing is you spend a little bit of time stuck in traffic. The best thing is that that there's no traffic. You might get a lot of traffic and you might get run over by a drunk driver. The drunk driver being that rapid pulse of sea level rise. Ali says even though the chances of him being hit are slim, he still bought a car with all the added safety features, just in case. And if society dealt with risks of climate change the way I deal with drunk drivers on the road... Uh, it's possible that we would be trying to slow down a little bit so that we could um, learn more uh, before we get hit by something. What's happening instead is more like stepping on the accelerator. Global emissions of the heat-trapping gas carbon dioxide reached record levels last year. Ali says the higher we crank up the planet's thermostat, the higher the risk becomes that we'll get hit by something nasty. For The World, I'm Sam Eaton. An Asian super city with a red-hot economy figures in our GeoQuiz today. It's one of the places where some job-seeking Americans are looking for work. Tina Sawaya is heading there. She's a 27-year-old from Connecticut. Lately, she's been waiting tables and juggling part-time jobs to make ends meet. So, Tina, where are you going specifically, and do you have a job already? Yes, I do. I'm I'm going to Shanghai, and I do have a job already there. I'm going to be um, teaching English there, so I guess I'll be an English teacher. Very cool. One-way ticket? One-way ticket. That's how I've been living my life the past 
five years. So it's another one-way ticket story. It's exciting. Now, it's not like you were unemployed or are unemployed. You're waiting tables, and New York waiters make pretty good tips. What made you decide to go to China then for employment? Well, I mean, I'm waiting tables, and I'm also teaching as well, which I love to do. And if when going to China, actually, I'll only have to have one job. I won't have to pick up a second side job for supplementary income. I'll be able to do what I love, immerse in a new culture, learn another language. And um, I'd really love to learn Mandarin because I speak Arabic and English fluently now. I'd love to add Mandarin to that list and um, really just discover a new country. And I understand you've got health benefits, which has to be somewhat advantageous for you right now. It's huge, actually. And the health insurance that they provide is applicable to any country anywhere. You just turn in your receipts and you get reimbursed, which is pretty awesome. So I can travel quite a bit throughout Asia and not have to worry about health insurance. I know you're used to big cities. I mean, New York City is a big city, right. to say the least. But but Shanghai, uh, with 23 million people, has more than twice <laughs> the population of New York. Is that at all intimidating or does that interest you, actually? It actually interests me. I feel like I thrive best in change. And so I'm really excited to really just immerse myself in it. But I would be lying And if I said I wasn't a little nervous. How have your friends reacted, though, to your decision to leave the U.S.? Um, I've actually gotten mixed reactions. Some of my friends are like, wow, you're leaving to a communist country. Why would you do that? The United States is amazing. And then my other friends um, actually, one reached out to me yesterday and said, hey, can you get me a job there, too? I'd love to come. Wow. It almost sounds like part of your decision to head to Shanghai is simply to seek adventure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just... I feel like right now China's a rising power and they're very successful, especially in education. Um, They're really dedicated and disciplined in education. And I really just want to be a part of that and see what they have to offer, be part of that revolutionary change, be a part of history, I guess. So you've got an employer who seems really engaged and excited to have you, but you're in a country with a human rights record that's pretty oppressive. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's definitely concerning and it's, It's something that I really want to be a part of. I want to go see what's going on. I want to see what's happening in China. And, you know, like I said, they're the rising power next to the United States. Some would argue they're surpassing the United States as the top power in the world now. And I want to be a part of that. And I want to see what's happening and be a part of the history and the making You know, so many of the grievances of the people at Occupy Wall Street are about, you know, people coming out of college, not having opportunities, not having a job, unable to pay their college loans. Do you feel any affinity to those sentiments? Absolutely. Ever since I graduated college, even with my business degree, when I went into investment management, I started out at an entry level position. And it's really difficult because in college, you're promised, oh, when you graduate, you'll make 50, 60,000 right off the bat, bachelor's degree, way to go. And um, when you get out of college, people want experience and you're in college the majority of the time. You don't have that much time to get much experience other than internships. So you're stuck doing entry level things with a bachelor's degree, whereas some of your friends that didn't go to college and are doing certain trades, you know, are moving up the ladder, making more money. So it's, it's definitely frustrating trying to find the right fit and picking up jobs that you're not interested in or make you miserable sometimes just to make ends meet. And do you have college, graduate school loans that you have to pay off? Will this job in China be able to help you make those ends meet? Absolutely. I Mm. definitely have. I have undergraduate and graduate loans that I have to pay. And um, 
actually half my salary will be going to back to the United States to my loans. But yes, it will definitely cover it and I'll be able to still live in Shanghai and travel. And so that's why it's really exciting to just have one job, have my bills taken care of and really just explore a new country and language. Have you found an apartment yet with the view of the Yangtze River? I have not, but I'm really <laughs> excited to find that. <laughs> Tina Sawaya, uh, good luck teaching in Shanghai, Shanghai being the answer to our geo quiz, and uh, keep us posted on your experience. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It is a tough job market here in the U.S., especially if you've just moved here from a war-damaged country more than 7,000 miles away, like Iraq. Jill Replogle of KPBS reports on efforts to teach Iraqi refugees living in San Diego the finer points of job networking. So on your paper, if we can start by listing everybody that you know, everybody that you could talk to about a job. A dozen well-dressed men and women scribble names on pieces of paper in this small, bare meeting room. Some finish quickly. They've only been in the country for a few months. Others wonder, how's this going to help? But they are not from our field, you know, just a friend. Right, so so just list down the folks you know, and and then we'll talk about it. The workshop is a training session to get the new arrivals, all refugees, ready for an international night of networking. That event is put on by San Diego Refugee Resettlement Agencies to connect high-skilled refugees with potential employers. The group in this room includes several engineers, a nurse, an anesthesiologist, a dentist... Most of them are from Iraq. It turns out Iraqi refugees are a particularly well-educated group. Ralph Achenbach is with the San Diego Refugee Forum. And we see in that population many with professional credentials, um, advanced degrees, and accomplished careers in their home countries. That doesn't mean it's easier for them to find jobs, at least not these days. Sally Habib is an IT specialist and graphic designer from Baghdad. He worked for several large American companies in Iraq, and he served as an interpreter for the U.S. military. Habib came to San Diego more than a year ago and still hasn't found a job. I don't know why. Maybe it's hard luck or uh, the situation in San Diego, or maybe it's my age. I'm over 50. Habib and other Iraqi refugees face another barrier to finding a job. When you come here, you have to buy a car because you can't find a job if you don't have a car. And you can't buy a car at the same time if you don't have a job. Habib says he's applied for about 100 jobs and only scored a handful of interviews. When he's not applying for jobs, he's busy learning to network. And what's one of the classic networking skills? The 30-second elevator pitch. Here's Habib trying it out. Uh, I'm sorry, Habib. Oh, hi. I'm Tanya Danberg. Nice to meet you. Hi. Nice to meet you. Actually, uh, I'm... Uh, looking for a job. I have five years' experience. Also, uh, <laughs> a week later, it's the big event, the International Night of Networking. Dark-haired men and women in dress suits and sport coats with stick-on name tags wander around the room. In front, a projector flashes images of the job seekers, along with their names and professions. It was nice to meet you. <laughs> this dark-eyed young man jumps from employer to employer. He says he studied IT at Baghdad University, but employers here don't recognize his degree. A common problem. Then he gets a promising sign from this partner in a small electronics firm. Send me your resume. I do know an IT manager at, uh, they work for one of those online universities. Mm -hmm. The other unemployed IT specialist, Salih Habib, doesn't leave the networking event with a job, but he does say it was useful. Yes, very useful, actually, because uh, I make kind of networking with people from 
two organizations. He means professional organizations of engineers. Habib says they gave him good ideas about more networking. In this job-scarce economy, that serves as good news. In the meantime, Habib says, he's applied for a security job and a substitute teaching job. Well, it's good, better than nothing. Habib also applied for a seasonal sales job at Sears, and he says they offered him the job. But that was a month ago, and they still haven't called him to begin orientation. After more than a year of job hunting, he says he's just now starting to lose hope. For The World, I'm Jill Replogel, San Diego. Coming up, a presidential candidate stumbles on the campaign trail in Mexico. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Being a presidential candidate invites a lot of scrutiny and criticism. Just ask Herman Cain, or you can ask Enrique Peña Nieto. He's a frontrunner in the race to become Mexico's next president. He's also the standard bearer for the PRI, the party that ruled Mexico for seven decades until the year 2000 and is now making a comeback. Peña Nieto's critics say the strikingly handsome candidate is just another pretty face who offers little substance. Whether that's true or not, the candidate added fuel to that fire recently. He drew nationwide ridicule by failing to answer a simple question he was asked at a major book fair in Guadalajara. Name three books that have influenced you. Well, reporter Frank Contreras is following the story in Mexico City. Frank, describe what must have been this uh, awkward moment uh, for us. It apparently went on for a few minutes as Peña Nieto turned to his aides for help. He went on for about five minutes trying to explain just what these important books were. And the first thing he did was kind of stumbled. You could tell he felt really uncomfortable with what appeared to be really a sort of softball question, Marco. Three books that have influenced your life. What are they? And the first thing he said was uh, the Bible. Then he mentioned another book. The translation would be something like The Eagle's Throne. And he said it was written by Enrique Krause, which turned out to be absolutely false. Mm. And everybody at the book fair knew that. This is a well-known book in the Spanish language world written by Carlos Fuentes. And so this is one of those moments that these uh, candidates just hate. You know, they're revealing to the public their Achilles heel and uh, appearing to be sort of not very literate, you know. And all of this has just produced this tremendous reaction here in Mexico, all across Facebook and Twitter. People are pretty much making fun of this presidential candidate now. And what's flabbergasting about this, Frank, is that uh, he stumbled on a question at the largest book fair in Latin America. So how could he and his staff not be prepared for this question? Really, that's what everybody's wondering. I mean, that was the question they were going to ask him. It made many people wonder, does this man really have any kind of serious content to guide the country forward? Just after this happened... One prominent historian said, listen, candidates, all of you, you need to have some kind of at least serious knowledge of Mexico's history to be able to guide this country forward. So Mm. if you don't have that, you know, you should seriously question whether you're whether you're really up for the job. Well, that's a historian. Uh, How have people, Mexicans uh, in general, reacted to his blunder so far? Well, on Mexico's Twitter sites here, people have been making fun of him, saying maybe he should have said, I read a famous book called I Have a Dream by Martin Burger King. (laughs) (laughs) Things like that. All kinds of jokes from all sorts of perspectives about what this man should have said, what he could have said. So it was a real tough day for the Mexican candidate, Peña Nieto. 
You know this side of the border, Frank, and you've been to a few bookstores here. Are, are books, by comparison, more expensive in Mexico? Definitely. Mexican books, on the average, cost from 30 to 40 even $50 a piece. Wow. That's pretty expensive, even on U.S. standards. But in Mexico, where the per capita income is much lower, you know, that's more than a day's salary, Marcos. So most people can't even afford a book. And that explains why so few people are even able to pick up a book every year. So according to some statistics, Mexicans on average read just three books a year. And I'm wondering maybe this incident with uh, Peña Nieto might actually prompt Mexicans to see more of themselves in him and vote for him. Is that possible? Well, I think the real reason they're going to vote for him, it's not going to be based on how many books he reads, but it's more going to be because they've lost faith in the current ruling party, the National Action Party. It's governed Mexico for 12 years, and a lot of Mexicans feel that they've sort of lost ground in this time. There are now more than 62 million Mexicans living in poverty, according to the United Nations, Marco. So many people feel that they've got to go back to the devil they know, the party that once ruled Mexico for 70 consecutive years. Its candidate is Peña Nieto. Reporter Frank Contreras in Mexico City. Thanks a lot. And finally today, money raised by some American musicians will make the lives of school students in Japan's Northeast a bit more musical. That's singer-songwriter Grant Lee Phillips at a recent benefit concert in Los Angeles. The concert helped fund a program called School Music Revival. It was founded in Japan after the earthquake and tsunami destroyed towns and cities in the northeast there last March. The concert held last month in Los Angeles was initiated by Eric Gorfain. He's a violinist with the Section Quartet. The quartet accompanied all the artists at the benefit concert, and Gorfain is in Tokyo today to hand-deliver the proceeds raised in Los Angeles. Eric Gorfain says school music revival has two goals. One is to um, help save the instruments that were lost. They consider the instruments to have been damaged, uh, not just uh, physically, but almost emotionally, uh, as well uh, as, as the people that have been afflicted. And they want to not only restore and replace the instruments that were lost and damaged, but specifically for the, the kids of the region that you know, are just learning music and, and want them to be able to get back to a normal life as quickly as possible. Elaborate on the emotional loss associated with music and the musical instruments. Of course, you know, life was lost uh, in, in untold numbers, and there's an ongoing, you know, nuclear disaster that's a severe problem. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people's minds and, and hearts and souls need to be uh, revived as much as sometimes uh, physical injuries do. When a child who loves music and loves practicing and playing their instrument loses it through no fault of their own, it must be a huge, devastating blow to their psyche. And uh, to be able to get back to that kind of life and uh, to be able to make music again and make a joyous sound after such a, a terrible tragedy can only do wonders for anyone's psyche, especially a child. Now, I know in Japan, uh, the composer Ryuchi Sakamoto ha has been involved in school music revival. How did you get involved? Well, I, you know, I, I spent four years of my life living over there um, in the early 90s, and um, I still go back and forth. The people of Japan that I've known personally have been so good to me that, I mean, this is the least I can do to help try to repay uh, in, in some, uh, you know, when, they, when they're in their time of need, whether they admit it or not, <laughs> it, it's got to be a difficult situation for anybody to go through. 
uh, and and any country to go through. Um, and it's just I wish I could do more. Now, your group, the Section Quartet, takes uh, well-known rock and pop songs and bends them into classical works. Uh, maybe you can suggest something that you played or something that somebody else played at, at uh, the concert to benefit School Musical Revival that you, you think kind of evokes the struggles of the people in Northeast Japan right now. Well, it's interesting. Um, two of our artists sang songs uh, that were based on the ocean and, and about the earth. One was Lisa Germano, who is a wonderful singer-songwriter here in Los Angeles, and uh, this was actually a song she had written a few years ago called From a Shell. When I asked her to, to perform, she immediately wrote back saying, this is the song I want to sing. From a little shell at the bottom of the sea With the earth, the moon, the sun around me But the world fell down with some people still around The song From a Shell, performed by singer-songwriter Lisa Germano with the Section Quartet. I spoke with Eric Gorfain, the ensemble's violinist. You can read about school music revival at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. It's a buzz, it's a buzz. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston. Supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.